Welcome to the Native Artist Podcast from Indigify, where every week we'll take a look into the unique stories and perspectives of Native artists. Hello, my name is Kili Yuyan. I'm Nanai and Chinese, and I'm a photographer. Based out of Seattle, photographer Kili Yuyin is Nanai, Siberian native and Chinese-American. He contributes to National Geographic and Time magazines, among others, traveling to the edges of the globe to uncover new perspectives and explore the relationship between man and nature. Describing himself as a cultural ambassador, he sets out to counteract the dominant colonial viewpoint and change the way indigenous people are viewed. Keeley caught my eye in his photo project on documenting traditional whale hunting in northern Alaska, spending four years living on the Arctic sea ice, where he traveled with a whaling crew and experienced the celebration of what a bowhead whale provides an Inuit community in the north. His work portrays Native people as people, not as a problem to be solved. I'm your host, Alexis Salee. Stay with us as we speak with photographer Keeley Yuyan. Keely, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's cool to run into you because I've heard of your work for some time. So I, I, I've kind of gotten to learn like a little bit more about you and your work. But running into you this week and you telling me about your journey, it's super interesting, like how you found your path into Alaska. That kind of started with kayak building, right? Yeah, definitely. For a traditional kayak building, my culture, the Chutzka and I, we, we were the the very beginning of where kayaks started from. Mm. So you could say whether you have the ancestor kayak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before it spread up around the Arctic all over. And then, of course, there's also Umyaks, which developed further north, and they, they're also the big brother, they're the big boys. I went up north to Ukavik to study with Patricia Sage, who is one of the Umyaks Gunsowers, and she passed recently but she was the like just this amazing repository for information and a, such a great culture keeper about skin sewing for umyaks and so it's not quite the same as kayaks but it's close enough the skins are thicker yeah <laughs> than umyak, but yeah very similar and then you know there's like a few other places where people do it but skin sewing is like a pretty lost art for the most part and now i know why because it's very difficult. <laughs> oh my gosh. From the first initial like journey into that community, how did you go from that to like photographing all this stuff for like Nat Geo and that oh, yeah. journey? Going up there to work on umyak sewing, basically, I was just like, oh, these are so cool. This is just an amazing craft. And then it just so happens, you know, I'm like, I'm pretty friendly with everyone. And then mm -hmm. just on the flight over, I, I met... Um, Robert Nyingyak and JJ Nyingyak. So Robert is a co-captain for Yugu crew, one of the whaling crews. And so we hit it off right away. And he was like, you should come out on the ice. <laughs> and I was like, all right, that sounds cool. That sounds great. I mean, I've I mean, grown up fishing and done a lot of hunting since I was young. You know, I was like, basically, I was like, oh, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I love to do that. So we went out and whaled with everybody. 
And then one year, one season turned into several more seasons. Just part of it is just like enjoying being out there with the crew. And then I started working on a photo project up there. Two years in, National Geographic and I were talking about the project and they were like, oh, we love this. We want to work with you more on it. So we worked on that all together for four years before it ended up getting run in the National Geographic in the magazine. Wow. But it was, yeah, it was a great day when it finally got published and like everyone that knew me and knew that it was coming out we were everyone was just so excited like the village was very uh, all stoked over it and then later i also made a did a short film called anayim prayer for the whale it also covers the same stuff and i see it appear all the time across the north slope like you know people will be sharing it on facebook and someone will rediscover it you know and it's so great because that was the whole goal especially to have youth discover it and get really excited to be part, you know, to be like, oh, hey, that's my uncle, you know, mm. <clears throat> to see themselves and be like, hey, that's like our, my rock star uncle now. Like yeah. have them think that traditional way of life, that whaling is really cool and something they want to keep doing. You can kind of see the spirit in your photos of like, it's a little bit more relatable, I think, to other indigenous people, especially when we I come from there, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely a thing where you bring when you go to a uh, like no matter where you go, unless it's your very own specific community, um, and even then you always bring your own individual perspective. Like even if you're like mm-hmm. filming your parents, you know, yeah, your parents see it very differently. I assure you. <laughs> <laughs> so there's always this sense that whatever it is you bring, you bring your own bias into it, and so of course people coming from the outside who have long had these deep stereotypes about native cultures are going to bring in their like romantic or dystopian idea Mm -hmm. of what subsistence looks like. But, you know, the, I think the thing about it is uh, I get to spend a lot of time. Like I'm, my process is, I feel like a very sort of slow, laborious indigenous process, (laughs) which is spending a lot of time with everyone doing stuff, you know, and Mm -hmm. getting to know what's really going on. And so, I think that means that as a result, it didn't take me very long to discover that whaling is about community. People think that it's about throwing the harpoon, but the harpoon is just like the period at the end of a sentence. You mm-hmm. know, like really whaling is about community. Yeah. But you need lots of people, you know, to, to bring it up. And that's why I love the community of because they're so, it's just so centered around the whale. It brings everyone together and there's this necessity for cooperation and yeah, getting together to do stuff. I once had an elder from Point Hope tell me the ocean is our garden and we have to take care of it to receive back from it. And that always like struck me in, in an interesting way because our marine mammals, you know, up there are, are a lot of our, our culture. And then learning a little bit about you, I, I noticed that it's kind of similar, like seals and whales are similar in your culture as well, right? Yeah, seals and salmon. Same as seals and salmon for sure. Yeah, big fish and and then some of the coastal marine mammals too. You grew up in the U.S. Like what's sort of your story of like how you stayed connected to your culture? It took a long time for me to really connect because my initial connection has always been through stories. Like uh, because we were displaced from our homeland, you know. uh, Mm. And then on top of that, like my parents are dealing with just they grew up in an era and an age when discrimination was against indigenous or ethnic minorities, as they're called in the Far East, are is very rampant all over the place, you know. So they kind of internalize this sense of self persecution 
you know, like don't show your indigeneity, assimilate as best you can. And that's kind of the story of China in general. It's like that shame. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just wanting to disappear and not put your head up, you know, above everyone else. It's just like, just keep your head down, be like everybody else. That's the whole story of it. So I think this is true for a lot of people from Asia, including Russia too, which is also Asia. It's the sense that everyone is able to get a brand new start. There's also this sense that everyone's trying to fit in. They call Asian Americans the model minority. It might be model minority because uh, people are just coming here and they're just kind of sick of all the shit. They have mm-hmm. to deal from the other colonial world. And so it's just a chance to like start from a clean slate. So it was interesting because for me, because of the stories that my grandmother gave me from a young age, like I realize it now, like looking back on it, I'm like, oh, it's because my grandma gave me all these cool stories and I was so excited about them. I uh, like stories of riding on the backs of orcas and wow. pulling up these like huge fish that are bigger than our kayaks. So I spent a lot of my college and post-college years just traveling around different cultures. Like I have relatives in Australia, so I went over there and, and spent time in Central Australia. Wherever I'd go, I'd kind of get hooked in. You know, I'd be traveling through or something, and then an elder would would find me and be like, you, come here. (laughs) (laughs) He'd be like, wait, how do you know? What? (laughs) But in Australia, what happened is because I was wearing um, a stone neck knife. So one of the kinds of like stone tools that we used to make back in the day, I really got into that skill of making um, stone knives. And so I was wearing around one around my neck because it's very handy for opening boxes <laughs> and stuff like that. You know, but that elder saw it. And he was like, hey, that's just like we do. And so like I hung out with him and then we ended up spending a whole bunch of time and he was like teaching me where the source of inspiration for didgeridoo playing is, you know, the sounds of the animals and all that kind of stuff. And so that variously happened to me at many times in my life. And then I started to actively seek it out. I was like, I want to learn how to do cedar basket weaving, you know, I want to learn more about cedar, this tree of life. And as I got deeper into it, the more I discovered there was all these common points between my own culture and all these other communities that have a lot of the same kinds of, like the specifics are very different, you know, but there's the same core thread of how close we are to the natural world, you know, and that relationship that we have, because it's so relationship based. Mm-hmm very different than hanging out with a bunch of hunters and fishermen who are non-indigenous. There's, it's very transactional. You know, that's not the sense you get from going to other places where a fish with, um, you know, you'll be fishing off of the north coast of Haida Gwaii with some Haida friends. And then we'd be catching fish, we'd be joking a lot. And mm-hmm. we'd be talking to the fish and talking to the seals and so much more gift economy, relationship-based kind of idea. So it was, yeah, there was a lot of all that growing up. So that for me, that was my way and I was I realized now that I was kind of looking for getting back my home community despite being forced away from it. You know, mm-hmm. like my parents were forced away by essentially genocide. <laughs> did you even like want to go into photography like sort of the first creative elements of like you know your story i don't know when it is i decided that i was going to do it as a profession Uh you know like throw caution to the wind (laughs) (laughs) mostly it was just like i take pictures on like my kayak trips Mm. and so i could tell friends and family about what i was seeing 
on really beautiful places and like you get pictures of whales sometimes or pictures of awesome sunsets or whatever grab bag of clams and crabs I've put into a bucket so that I'm going to eat for the night, you know, so I could share with everyone what I was doing or what I was doing with friends and stuff like that. Uh, so that's how that developed. And it was just, it just ends up being so fun and people react so well because they're like, oh, whatever you're doing is super cool. And you realize that it's the photographs that are bringing it to them, not my yammering away. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what really got me into it. And then I also got excited because I found Strobist, which is a, like a early lighting blog about how to do artificial light. And so I got really excited about like doing portrait lighting and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that pulled me in even deeper. Somewhere along the lines, I was like, this is really cool. I'm just going to do this. But, you know, it was really lucky because I had my kayak building business. And so I kept doing that. And I was able to support me through the time to get things started. And then when I switched into documentary, get it started again. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there was definitely, there are definitely some lean years in there for sure. So do you still have your kayak business? I do. I yeah, do. Wow. Yeah. Although this year, I think it's going to be very, very pulled back. Like last year was crazy town with the amount of traveling and being about teaching kayak building and then also going out on assignment, uh, photographing. So this year I've got to pull back on the kayak stuff, but I'll always keep doing it because it's important to me. Now, as you know, natives in this new creative space, new as in like the last you know few decades, from thousands of years, like how we interacted. And now I think about how that translates to myself as like a filmmaker or you as a photographer. We are capturing and doing parts of our culture, but also navigating like the Western world of business, <laughs> you know? And I'm, I'm sure that's something you, you have to deal with a lot. You mentioned the other day that there is a very, very small group of native photographers. Yep. And how do you give opportunity to them for these communities that need someone to come in and understand protocol. And even though all our cultures are very different, like you were saying, like, take that time to get to know the community and you can't just come in with your cameras and just start shooting things away. And and how do you navigate this whole thing? I talk about this a lot because I, I don't think that it like drives home that easily, but the best thing to do is just go and play with the kids and help do all the stuff that needs to happen, like, you know, you take out the trash, help clean the dishes and like help butcher a seal, you know, the normal things <laughs> that you have to do in life. <laughs> and then, you know, so that you become a part of the community, even if your time is short, there's a level of that you can achieve to not just build the trust, but also just to become a part of the thing instead of trying to become the fly on the wall or the gecko on the wall. It's just like, that's never a real thing anyway, being a fly on the wall. So you might as well be involved. And then that way it's real empathy. You know what I mean? Like it's real empathy because it's actually happening to you, you know? So mm -hmm. you're immersed in the culture versus where when you're standing to the side to be objective means basically you're distant and applying <laughs> your values upon something that you're seeing from far away. So it's good to like get involved. Indigenous still photographers who are working on a really high level, there's not a whole lot of. Like, I'm part of a cooperative called Natives Photograph, and everyone is just fantastic. You know, it's amazing work that people are doing, but there's few of us. There's not very many. There's a lot of reasons for that. It's just, in general, like, news and journalism is dying, or print media is dying. So those of us that are dependent on print media, there's not that much space, period. And that world is very competitive. So 
it's even more important for us to support each other, you know, and to be in community with each other. I am so busy with the work that I'm doing that I constantly get requests about this or that. And I'm I always just like, oh, yeah, Taylor would be perfect for this, you know, or Brian would be perfect for this. And so I'll send them their info. And then it, it's just great because I end up being the touch point. You know how it is. Oftentimes in groups of people, you're like the only Native person that someone knows. <laughs> and they're like, tell me about everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then in this case, it's the same is true for a lot of editors who are mainstream media. You know, they're like, they don't know who else to talk to about anything. I, I was actually in Greenland working um, on a story when Trump tried to buy Greenland. Oh. <laughs> no, it was that whole thing. Uh -huh. No. And so the Wall Street Journal called me and, and they were like, hey, like, I know you can't do it. You're on assignment for somebody else right now. But do you know anyone else that can cover this story? I was like, you guys don't know anybody in <laughs> Greenland? <laughs> like zero? The Wall Street Journal? Like, there's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and we're pretty much all indigenous here. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, it was really funny. So I, I gave him a bunch of names of people who are local that can cover the story. <laughs> nice. Well, we're here with photographer Keely Yuyin, and we'll be right back. Since the dawn of time, the salmon have returned. Compelled by instinct, they respond in the millions. A reminder that, with purpose and perseverance, we can chart the course of our future. As Bristol Bay Native Corporation has done for nearly 50 years, investing in future generations here in a place that's always been. We're here with photographer Keely Yuyin. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you are enjoying this episode. You know, there's something we always have to do as Native people, this constant education. How do you navigate coming up as an Indigenous person and photographer working in this business? Um, I, can, I think as I feel fairly used to explaining things. Yeah, I feel fairly used to explaining stuff all the time, but I also try to kind of avoid it unless, unless like there's a need to know, you know, like mm -hmm. I, don't, I just want to be me <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> to a large extent. But, you know, for my start in all of this stuff, it, a lot of this is by accident. Like I happened to be, I was interested in commercial photography. So I was an assistant. And then I worked very briefly as a commercial photographer. Then I assisted Robert Clark, who was a longtime National Geographic photographer by accident. You know, they just needed someone. And then uh, Robert and I really hit it off. You know, he was just like, you're so interesting. And I was like, you're so interesting. <laughs> and so we, we had a great time. And then he like sent off. I mean, he was like, I want to see your work. So I showed it to him and I was just doing like, I was just barely in documentary at that time. I had just done like one or two little projects and he sent it off to his editor. I was like, hold on. <laughs> like I, this was clearly not ready. I never even thought about working for National Geographic before, you know, yeah. but you know, he sent it off and then they were like, this looks interesting. We kind of want to run some of this stuff. And it didn't happen, but they, when next time I was in DC, when I wanted to say hello, they're like, yes, come up. You'll meet all the editors and all of that. So that got me into it. And I started to understand over time that it's just like with everything else, you're just building a relationship. And, and then everything was just really easy flow because I wasn't thinking about 
am I going to get work from this? Am I going to be, you know, am I going to be something or am I going to do something? It was just like, mm-hmm. these people, these editors are some of the smartest, most well-educated people that I know. Like they're super cool. They've seen a lot of stuff and they know so much about photography, you know, like they see like the world's best work. So basically like, I'm going to be a sponge. I'm going to learn everything I can from you. And, you know, like I'm going to get to know who you all are. And it, there's a lot of cool stuff happening too at the geographic at that time. Like you're starting to bring on a lot of minority staff and then also photo editors in general, like in the still photography world, it's mostly women. And so I remember walking up into the offices there and like seeing this ground floor level of mostly women photo editors and just being like, this is so cool. Wow. <laughs> You know, it's just not something that you see in the photography world. Generally, it's male-dominated. Um, yeah. So it was really cool to see all that stuff. And so I was just like, I'm really excited to build a relationship with all of these people, mm-hmm. you know, and to to pick their brains and learn more about what's going on with them, too. And so that, I think that was a really good. And I continued to, to, like, have that kind of attitude towards working with people. And so I think that's helpful because then I'm not worried about when is this going to happen? Or is this going to, you know, like I, I, I'm passionate about the work. Like I'm mostly very excited about the projects I'm doing and I'm excited to work with individual people. And then, so because I'm concentrated on those two things, the rest of it just kind of falls into place because I care about the right things, or I like to think yeah. that I care about the right <laughs> things anyway. So I, I don't worry too much about funding and getting this story or whatever, you know, like I still have to learn obviously like the, the skills of pitching and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But all of those things are much easier when you know the other person on the other side. Mm. Like my pitches are much less formal. And then another thing that happens with the relationship with the editors is a lot of times once I know someone, they'll sometimes they'll come to me and just say, I don't, we don't know what's going on in the indigenous world or we don't know what's going on right now in the Arctic, but we want to work with you on something. Do you have some suggestions? And I'll be like, well, <laughs> yes, I do. Let me pull up my <laughs> spreadsheet with you know, the like ideas I've been collecting for the last like six months, uh-huh. you know, and then they'll, then I'll fire them off and it'll just be a paragraph a piece because uh, I know them. But there's no need to go through this very formal process until I get to the point where there's someone's like, we talked to a whole bunch of people and we all decide that we this just sounds like a great idea. So send us a very formal pitch and then I'll do a whole bunch more research. For maybe an aspiring photographer listening to this podcast, what sort of advice would you give in navigating that business world of like, I have the skills I've learned on my own, but how do I break into this business? I think the most important thing for sure, 100%, is to work on a personal project that you love, absolutely love. I always picture it this way. It's like, Whatever it is that you do, you have to love it so much that you would do it even if no one paid you to do it or even if there's no chance that it would be published. You're just like, ah, I must do this. That's how important it is to me, even if I have to self-fund it. And yeah, like it's hard if you um, don't have the privilege to like have enough money to set aside so that you can jaunt off to some faraway place and not slowly starve to death or, you know, get kicked out. Mm-hmm. Um of your of your flat <laughs> but like the thing is if you're really excited about it if you're excited enough you find find a way to do it you know like mm-hmm. start asking around who do i know that lives there um, or how many degrees of separation 
can I Kevin Bacon my way into this, play, <laughs> into this place so I can stay at someone's place for free? And then how can I use my frequent flyer miles or whatever it is? You know, can I drive there in my rickety car mm-hmm. and then make the thing? Or it could just be the story that you do in your backyard. It's your mom going through chemo or something like that. There's just all kinds of stories all around. But whatever it is, you have to be super excited about it. And so I think then once you are working on that project, the other thing I think that it's important to do is also to save up some money and go to portfolio reviews. So that's a whole thing that in a sense, it's it's a bit equivalent to film festivals, except that portfolio reviews are more specific to getting jobs. You know, they, they set it up so that there's tables where there's a bunch of reviewers who are all editors and curators and stuff, people who can hire oh, wow. photographers and you meet with them for 20 minutes at a time and you get like 10 of, the, you know, you meet like 10 people over a series of days. Mm-hmm. Usually they cost some money. They're not all expensive. The New York one, which used to be the New York Times one, is free. It's juried. So you have to, you know, like get past the the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. but then it's free. You know, you can fi- get your way to New York and then do that. But the, there's plenty of ones that, that cost some money. It goes up from say like $300 to like $1,000 but those are just so invaluable. And I know people go in and then they're they're like, oh, I paid $1,000 for this. Um, it's a lot of money. And so then they go in and they're like very transactional. They're talking to the reviewers and trying to get something out of them, trying to get some story back. But I think the other thing is just, to, just what I was talking about before. It's all about that relationship. You know, like, like the thing is, I re- recognize that the person on the other side of the table is not only an interesting, cool human being, but they've seen so much amazing stuff, so much amazing work. And they're excited to see you too, because they are looking for new work all the time. They want to find something that breaks the mold or challenges the the world of photography or world of art. Yeah. Um, and so, it, you know, you go in there, fluff your feathers. <laughs> <laughs> You're on equal footing, you know, and you just look at you're building a relationship with a person. And that's a great way to go into it. Because if you leave at the end of the day and you've built a relationship with several people, you know, you come out and you're like, I have friends who are, these are wonderful people that I have relationships with now. And then, you know, like you will continue to communicate with them via email or social media or whatever it is, you know, and then invariably because they're thinking about you as a friend and a person then they're going to say uh when it comes time to get an assignment or something like that then they'll likely send it your way but it is worth it the portfolio reviews are definitely worth it it's one of the few ways nowadays to get your work out in front of people and it's really effective because people have made the time and the space to go they're reviewing because they want to see your work they set aside the time so it's not like you're barging into their office and you're like, hey, can you give me half an hour of your time? And they're like, no, I am so, I'm like crushed under deadlines, you yeah. know? That's like every editor all the time. Well, they're they're, they're craving the talent too, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a good time and space for it, you know? So they have set aside that time. Mm-hmm. And then they go into it, not only looking for stuff, but they're, it's not this passive thing. So you're face to face and talking to another human being. And that's really great because it's just so much harder to ignore someone when you can feel their energy, mm-hmm. like across the table <laughs> from you, you know, it's just so, it's such a human thing and, mm-hmm. it's, and it's great. As a creative, you should have some marketing budget, whatever it is. And rather than spend that on email marketing, which is totally worthless or 
buying a bunch of postcards and sending them all out, which easily could cost $1,000. You know, who knows what's going to come of that. Just take the time to go to a portfolio view, like meet some really cool people and see what happens. It's just this wonderful give and take relationship that happens. And that's really worth it. Definitely. And it's kind of a newish thing. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that portfolio reviews have been around all that long. You get to go to a new, new place, like a new city, um, somewhere and check it out. And like, you have time to go and visit and see the place, get to know it, which is cool. That's great. Well, Keely, thank you so much for being here today and sharing all the insight oh, sure. and really giving our listeners some things to take away from this episode and hopefully some actionable steps. Uh, you know, I hope to always see more indigenous people in creative fields. So thanks again for being here and sharing your creative mindset. Bye, Dylan. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, everyone, for listening and tuning in these last few weeks. This is my last episode on season one of the Native Artist Podcast. These next few weeks, we're going to be hearing from some of the other hosts in Native Country, which I'm so excited to hear some of these episodes myself. I want to thank you so much for tuning in these last few weeks. I appreciate you. And if you've been enjoying the content, please rate and subscribe. We would love to get your feedback and maybe do a season two. Who knows? You can find out more about the Native Artist Podcast at nativeartistpodcast.com. If you're enjoying the show, please make sure to rate and subscribe and comment. Theme music by Inuk Artist Reed. Additional music in this episode from Ray Zaragoza, DJ Boogie the Beat, and Samantha Crane. The Native Artist Podcast is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the Siri Foundation, supporting Alaska Native education, culture, and heritage since 1982, and Bristol Bay Native Corporation. This episode is produced by me, your host, Alexis Salee. This has been a production of Indigify. <laughs>